0: Moncrief on News Talk. Now, the Scala Cinema in London was one of those places that, for people who were there at the time, kind of never got over it. It offered a madly eclectic programme of films, but it was also a breeding ground for filmmakers, musicians and artists. It's also a bit of a mad place. Jane Giles was a programmer there back in the day and also is co-director of a new documentary about it simply called Scala, with loads of exclamation marks behind it. Jane, good afternoon. Hi. When did you first become involved with the Scala?
1: Well, I first went there as an audience member in August 1981. I was barely 17 years old, and I remember it clearly. I was up from my hometown in West Sussex exploring London and went to an all-night show of horror films. Um, And i have been working as a night cleaner at Gatwick Airport, so I was used to staying up all night and really kind of like looking to discover um, culture in a completely different way from what I'd grown up with. Um, and then in 1988, I was very lucky to get the job of programmer at the Scala Cinema. And when the, on your first visit there, what was it about it? Well, it was such an atmospheric place. First of all, you arrived in King's Cross late at night, and that was quite a busy, quite a busy terminus. Um To put it bluntly, it was sort of crawling with vice in different ways. But for young people arriving there and heading over to Scala Cinema, which sort of looked like the um, kind of Disney castle, you know, on the front of Walt Disney Films, Mm. you see a beautiful kind of like enchanted castle. That's what it felt like to me. Um, You go in... um, into the box office area and up very, very long winding uh, black and white marble staircase into an old cinema that had been built in 1920, Um, found your way through into the kind of what felt like the deepest, darkest auditorium in London, and then sit and watch five completely disreputable horror films in a row, Um, but also, I'm so sorry about that, go on, but would also, um, you know, discover music for the first time. Uh, it was where I first heard Joy Division um, was the on the intermission music between um, between the films showing at the Scala. Ah, right. Did bands ever perform there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The Scala started its life in Fitzrovia, which is about a mile away from King's Cross in the West End of London. Um, and very famously in um, March 1980, Spandau Ballet played what was only their fourth gig, gig mm-hmm. at the Scala Cinema. It was a time when kind of after the Sex Pistols had played at the Screen on the Green Cinema um, in 1976, I think it was. It was a really it was a, sort of the thing mm-hmm. to do, like for, for bands like that to find alternative showcases than the usual sort of slightly stale um, concert halls, uh, so you know cinemas were kind of quite popular as as gig venues, indie gig venues, also because you could play films between um, the bands playing, and also play film on the screen behind the band as they played.
0: All right. Now, I mean, you mentioned uh, your first night there was a night of horror films, but but. They showed absolutely everything. Well, I mean, they weren't showing kind of very mainstream movies for the most part, but they showed in uh, any, every particular genre you could think of there.
1: Well, yeah, we always say that, that Scala showed everything from classics to cult movies, kung fu films, horror films, lesbian and gay films, and experimental movies and animation and music documentaries, music films it was very keen on as well. It was a big range, but Hollywood classics did make up part of it. Um, But they'd be more like the films that had kind of come out in the 50s. Mm. Uh, Marilyn Monroe movies, they were really popular with the audience. We used to sometimes do Marilyn Monroe all-nighters and seasons. So sort of in a way, it was showing films that had been mainstream at a certain point. Um, And then we would show films that were sort of like off the West End of London. So when something like With Nail and I came out, uh, the Scala would pick up on it as a repertory cinema um, and put it into a programme of double bills or triple bills with something like, I remember programming it with a, an amazing film called Sir Henry at Rawlings and End. And it, and it really went well with with Nell and I as a sort of disreputable, kind of slightly eccentric <laughs> yes. cult movie double.
0: Did, and would it depend what kind of crowd came along depending on what was being shown on any given night?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Scala attracted different tribes. So we had the Kung Fu tribe, we had the gay tribe, we had, you know, the people interested in Laurel and Hardy films, because it was also the home of the Laurel and Hardy Appreciation Society. Um, but then all of those tribes occasionally got mixed up in the same place. They all sort of thought that they owned the Scala and they were the only ones that went there. Um, But actually, sorts of different types of people from, you know, very sort of superficially ordinary people. In the movie, we've got a lovely old lady called Mrs. Reeve who was um, interviewed in 1990 about her love of horror films at the Scala. She used to come um, every week uh, with her son, Melvin, and she was a real sweetheart. She used to bring um, Christmas presents for the cats. We had cats in the Scala cinema, uh, (laughs) two tap. And she loved the cats. She gave them little presents and treats. And when the Scala was towards the end of its life in 1993, uh, Mrs. Reeve contributed to the campaign to save the Scala. She she gave us some money towards that. Um, Sadly, it didn't work. But then when we were editing the film, I got in touch with Mrs. Reeves' family and I'd found that she'd only just died. Um, she was born in 1914. She was born before the First World War. Gosh,
0: gosh, that's, yeah, that's uh, absolutely some innings. And, but, but while you were saying, you know, different tribes uh, um, uh, collected in in, in the scala, were there kind of people who were kind of there all the time or hung around at least very regularly? Because, it's, you know, yeah, one gets the impression there was a lot going on in between the movies and the music. <laughs>
1: Um, You're absolutely right. There were regulars. There were people who would come. um, I guess it was convenient for them. It was certainly very cheap as a cinema. You could go and pay, you know, if you, if you had like a concessionary ticket price, if you were like unemployed or a student or an old age pensioner for something like two pound 50, you could see a triple bill of movies. That could be up to like eight, nine hours worth of film. So it was a very cheap place to go. And people, um, who really just wanted to absorb a lot of films, would go there. You've got to remember it was a time sort of before DVD, definitely before DVD. Mm -hmm. VHS was just starting to take off um, in the early 80s, and there wasn't really that much of a choice on television, and there was certainly nothing like streaming channels. So it was quite limited, and it was great value. What was the Looking for Mr. Goodbar incident? Well, um one day the Scala was showing a double bill of Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is a sort of 1970s uh drama, um, with a film called Variety, which is directed by Betty Gordon and actually was quite recently re-released. And it was a sort of um sort of New York women on the pull, kind of sort of slightly mm easy but mostly dramatic uh, pairing of a double bill and um the usher went to find the front house manager to say that there was someone in the cinema who hadn't been moving for several hours so they went to investigate and they found that the man uh was cold um and they realized that he'd, he'd passed away of uh heart attacks so the manager called the um ambulance who came with the police and uh the body was uh removed from the cinema into the manager's office and the thing to um the thing to know is at the time the manager was a 19-year-old woman called Joanne Seller. Um so she was very young. She went on to be a great movie producer. She produced all of the films of um Paul Thomas Anderson starting with Boogie Nights and ending with um Phantom Thread. So she lives in America now. She's a great producer. But at the time, she was a very young woman programming the Scala and pulling dead bodies out of the auditorium. And when the police arrived with the ambulance, they encountered a huge, great big billboard for the evil dead, which at that time (laughs) had just been released and was (laughs) busy getting into trouble with the authorities um, because of the video nasty. Uh, Do you remember there Mm. was... um, the prohibition of films before they were classified on video by the BBFC. So the police looked at this billboard and looked at Joanne and looked at the dead body and said, oh, showing one of those video nasties, were you? Is that the reason why the man's dead? And she's like, no, actually, we're showing looking for Mr. Goodbar. So it's kind of just a little cute moment in the film. Well, it's not cute. I mean, it's about (laughs) someone's death. But all I can say is, Whoever that man was, I think he died happy doing something that he loved—watching a double bill at the Scala.
0: Yeah, and in in a warm, comfortable place, uh,
1: really. So. Yeah. Uh,
0: a, a lot of people, though. I mean, your initial description of it, though, was—it it sounded quite romantic. But from you know what I read, sticky floors, hard seats, with you know, it wasn't. <laughs> It was the most luxurious of surroundings, perhaps. It
1: certainly wasn't luxurious. It wasn't like today's uh, movie theatres, which really, you know, kind of like pile on the comfort. I think back in the 80s, it was quite sort of, it it was quite usual to come across cinemas that were like, had a little bit of the flea pit about them. The seats were worn out and collapsing. Um, The floors were sticky because of the, like all night clubs that used to go on there, and people used to kind of spill their beer all over the place and and whatnot. But it had a charm. It wasn't threatening. It was very safe. I mean, like I said, we had cats. How dangerous can a place with cats mm. be? Unless you're a mouse, unless you're a mouse, of course. <laughs> uh, so people just loved it there. It was very high on atmosphere. Um, it was quite. Uh, there was a lot of freedom for people to express themselves in the cinema and that wasn't really the case in as Britain at the time yeah for uh, you know for, for, for youth uh,
0: when you took over the programming then Jane uh, was it relatively easy to source the kind of films that you were so- showing at the Scala because I assume there wasn't a lot of competition for them because they were on the obscure end of things or a lot of them were
1: well there were a few repertory cinemas in London at the time like the Everyman and the National Film Theatre so there were a few cinemas doing the same kind of programming but the Scala really dialed that up to 11 in terms of what it showed and um so the way we programmed was to look at the catalogues of film distributors and to, you know, kind of like put on the same types of double or triple builds that did well at the box office every month or every other month. So obviously that's what it means, repertory. It means a repeating programme, mm. of um, similar kind of type films. Um, and we didn't have the internet in those days, so if we heard about a film that sounded interesting, like read about it in, you know, a magazine or whatnot, we'd try and track down um a cinema that was showing it or film festival that and premiered it and asked them where the rights were and where the print came from. Um once I got a print into the country in the diplomatic bag via the American cultural attache. Hmm. And that was quite a kind of, you know, big deal. Like I wouldn't usually go to such lengths because we really didn't have the finance as a fairly threadbare organization to import prints. in and yeah. the and, and yeah, and given
0: uh, I suppose, and, and given where the building was and I assume rents and everything and, 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 and uh, around King's Cross, uh, uh, property prices would have become uh, increasingly expensive. Did, did the Scala kind of basically run out of road economically and that it just wasn't viable in a location like that?
1: Uh, that's very perceptive and a very good point. Um, the reality was when the Scala was able to move into Kings Cross from its original home in Fitzrovia in 1981, rents were low, and the previous tenant of the Kings Cross Cinema had had a, a business enterprise called the Primatarium, which was kind of like an environmental experience telling the story of um, uh, conservation, and it had failed. Um, so there was an empty cinema. Um also, Stephen Woolley, who is the director of the Scala uh was given a ten thousand pound payout by Channel Four, who'd taken over the Fitzrovia building, so he had the resources to relocate up the road a mile up the Euston Road in King's Cross and that was great. He really kind of like got it off the ground, but by nineteen ninety three Um, Palace Pictures, which was Stephen Woolley's other company, it was a great film and video distribution company and production company. They'd had to be wound up financially. They had a couple of bigger budget films that really hadn't worked. They'd over diversified. So Palace went down in 1992. And by 1993, the Scala lease in King's Cross was running out. We always knew it was on a 12-year lease from 1981. We always knew the lease was going to run out in 1993. What we didn't know was that we would completely fail to raise the finance once Palace was no longer an entity. So that's probably a little bit too much detail uh, for the film and probably for the radio show at the moment as well. But you're right to point to yeah. um, the expiration of leases and, and the sort of soaring um, expectations that landlords had in King's Cross.
0: Uh, there was also now, and I know it, it didn't cause the closing of the scallop, and I'm sure it didn't help at the time, there was the court case, the, the Clockwork Orange court case. What happened there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um so, as I said, you know, films came from sort of here, there, everywhere. They came from distribution collections, but they also came from private prints came from private collectors who'd sort of like collected prints that they used to find just in skips outside movie studios. um The film companies didn't even didn't didn't always want to pay to store hundreds and hundreds of thirty five mil prints in very expensive um warehouses. So uh, they sling the prints, and private collectors would go rooting through and kind of like gather them together. And it was actually a really important way of um, being able to make the history of cinema continuously available. Um, so I had been offered a private collector's print of Plotwork Orange, and it was not available in the UK at the time. It wasn't banned but it was not in distribution. Uh, The film's uh, director, Stanley Kubrick, famously had um, kind of had enough of the British tabloid press in the early 70s blaming Clockwork Orange for copycat violence. So he withdrew the film from distribution in the UK, but only in the UK, not in, um, you know, France or Germany Mm. or America. So... You know, people kind of like grew up, like seeing pictures from the film and hearing about the film, but being totally unable to see it, apart from on a sort of, you know, pirate VHS copy, which was not great. I took advantage of the offer of putting on a collector's print. I put it on under um, a sort of surprise film. Uh, I didn't name it. And I put it in a double bill with um, Lindsay Anderson, the film If also starring Malcolm McLaren. Um, And a a small number of people came. It was an afternoon screening. Uh, But one of those people was James O'Brien, the radio broadcaster. And he gave us a fantastic – he was, like, a student at the time at London School of Economics, and he'd actually come to Scala to watch the film If, being a Malcolm McDowell fan, bringing along a new girlfriend that he wanted to show the film to. And he was very surprised when the next film came on and it turned out to be Clockwork Orange. He gave us a lovely interview, um, and but unfortunately, there was someone else in the audience who reported the screening to the film distributors, who reported it to the Film Distributor Association, who reported it to the Federation Against Copyright Theft, who pursued criminal prosecution of myself. Um, why, a- why you, Jane? Why not the cinema? Well, you can only prosecute an individual. You can't prosecute uh, an Uh organisation. So you prosecute the person responsible for making that decision at the time. So I I attempted to apologise to uh, make financial reparation. But the Federation Against Copyright Theft weren't having any of it. They wanted a kind of... You know, video piracy was a real problem threatening the industry at that time. And they wanted a sort of like high profile, you know, kind of name and shame type case, even though obviously this was not the same as VHS piracy of a mainstream film. It took a year to drag through the courts. It was a really horrible experience. And I think the main thing was, even if it wasn't that expensive, it certainly was distracting at a time when we knew the lease was running out and we should have been looking for other properties and looking for other ways of, you know, continuing the Scala business. But none of that happened. The lease ran out. Um, Stephen and his um, fellow director, Nick Powell, pulled the plugs on the Scala as a business because they didn't want to incur uh, any debt with that company. And the Scala closed its doors in June 1993. And ironically, um, by the year 2000, Stanley Kubrick um, had died and um, uh, Clockwork Orange was promptly uh, re-released by distributor Warner Brothers.
0: Jane, thanks, a million for uh, speaking with us today. Scala is showing at the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin on January the 11th and in the Triscoll Arts Centre in Cork from the 14th to the 17th of January. That was Jane Giles there, we were just talking to, co director of that documentary. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.